We're in Numbers chapter 6. I just noticed that I had put a quote by Thomas Manton there, um, essentially on good works in the relationship of faith. Um, and that comes from his, his book, uh, his, um, his commentary in the book of James. If you are studying the book of James, he, he's the absolute best. Thomas Manton, tw- spend $20. There's no one better that, on James than Thomas Manton, um, in my opinion. All right, number six. Last week what we did is we considered the first section, which is the lengthy section, verses 1 through 21, and we dealt with the section on the Nazarite. Uh, These are the the folks that wanted increased commitment to the Lord. And tonight what we're going to do is we're going to finish off chapter 6 in this brief section, uh, verses uh, 22 to 27, and we're looking at the priestly blessing uh, upon God's people. So let me read that brief section for us, and then we'll see um, what we can see. Numbers six twenty-two. Uh, hear the holy word of God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord God lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we thank you for your word, for all of it, for, 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 for every jot, every tittle. We confess, Almighty God, there are parts of your word that are frightening to us, but we believe them. We thank you for them, rightly understood. But there are other aspects of your word, Lord, that are just sweet uh, to our hearing. And this is one of them. It is just all promise, all goodness, all mercy, all love. It's a, a promise that you'll give yourself to your people. Help me tonight in such a beautiful passage. Help us uh, tonight, Lord God, receive and bask in um, a beautiful God. We pray this in the name of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So in this brief passage, what we have, obviously, is a priestly blessing. And the definition, excuse me, of a priestly blessing is a benediction. That's what a benediction is. So this is a benediction. And in a benediction, what's going on is there is um, the invoking of God's blessing Upon God's people. And we'll talk about in a little bit to invoke something is a form of petition or a supplication, but it's a benediction, it's a blessing. And for me, if I could draw the connection from this passage to the previous one that we just mentioned, 1 through 21, I find it interesting that this blessing, this invocation of God's blessing upon God's people, comes immediately after the Nazarite section. And it's not it's not arbitrary, so God the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to put it exactly where he put it. And so the Nazarite section teaches us that we have believers who have an increased desire for increased communion and commitment unto the Lord. And so what this section teaches us right after that is God means to bless his people. 
So you have God's people saying, we want to love you more, serve you more, to be devoted to you more. And then God says, I promise to bless my people. Now, I want to, there's a connection there. And I want to be careful. The connection I'm trying to draw is not a mercenary connection. So this is not quid pro quo. I think quid pro quo means specifically this for that, I think, or something for something. This for that or something for something. We're not saying... Well, if we tell God, we will give increased commitment, we will be increasingly devoted to you, we'll do some special act of service like the Nazarite, then God will say, okay, now I will bless you. That would be mercenary. That's, that's wrong. We can't put God uh, into obligation uh, unto us like that. But the principle here that's being taught is as as we increasingly desire God, God promises that he'll bless us. Even though mercenary obedience is offensive to God because it's essentially trying to bribe God to give grace, which is antithetical to grace, the Bible does still teach that it pleases God when we delight in God. You know the the passage that says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of his heart, right? What's going on here with the Nazarite is the Nazarite says, God is my delight. And then God says, that I'm going to give you the, de- the, the desire of your heart, which is what? <laughs> which is God. So this isn't delight yourself in, in the Lord and then God's going to give you a Mercedes Benz. Delight yourself in the Lord and the Lord promises to give you himself. And, 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 and this is obviously not objectively but it's experimentally that we will sense more of God's love more of God's holiness more of God's kindness more of God's mercy I want more of God you can have the Holy Spirit and you can be filled with the Holy Spirit and you can't drive away the Holy Spirit that's not what I'm talking about but God promises he will give us to him as we have desires after him and then the, the opposite somewhat is also true We can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that through our obedience, God is pleased to delight us according to his grace by giving us himself. But the Bible says that when we sin, when God is not the the delight of our heart, when God's word does not prevail with us, then our word sometimes doesn't prevail with him. And this is what it means to be grieving the Holy Spirit. Read Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through uh, 4 through uh, 11. The Bible will say in the book of Psalms and elsewhere that our sin can make a separation, obviously not sever us from the union, but it can disturb the communion. This is a confession of faith, chapter five, paragraph five. But the the larger truth that I want us to see is as we desire, like a Nazarite, really desire God for God's sake, not what God can do, but for God. God makes a promise here. I will give you myself. And, and I will bless you. With, that's the whole business of writing my, his name upon us, giving us his peace, giving us his protection, his provision, all of these things. God says, I'll give you the desire of my, my, your heart, which is to say, um, the Lord. Now, the way this brief section opens is very common in the book of Numbers. It uses this common phrase every time there's a new section or many times that there's a new section where God, the Holy Spirit, inspires Moses to write the word of the Lord, you have this common phrase, then the Lord spoke to Moses. If you have a Bible computer program and you mash in those words and hit enter, 
you're going to see it a number of times, almost in every chapter of the book of Numbers. It's very common. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. And what's being taught here is the divinity of the word of God, the divinity of the Bible. Now, we still, in the book of Numbers, obviously, we're in the old epoch or the old era. And so the way that I would divide, well, the the way the Bible is divided is Old Testament, New Testament. Old epoch, old era, new era. And the thing that divides it is obviously the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there begins to be a change in the way that God reveals himself, savingly, redemptive uh, uh, revelation. Uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the Old Testament, which is what we're here, God still reveals himself through dreams and visions and urim and thurim. I don't think he does dreams and visions anymore, but he still is doing that uh, here. I'm a cessationist. That's another, um, that's another uh, sermon. But we're still in the old epoch where he is still speaking through dreams and visions, and we're still in Israel's time of infancy, which means when God speaks and he reveals the gospel, it's in that propodeutic or infancy stage where it's types and shadows. A good section to get a handle on this is the confession, our confession, chapter 7, paragraph uh, what, 4 and 5, with the scripture proofs. So what, what's going on is God is speaking to Moses. We don't exactly know, does he speak audibly or does he speak seemingly audibly in a vision? Uh, This is the way that God spoke to Abraham. The Bible says this in Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. So Abraham, it's like he's audibly hearing from God, but it's in some kind of mystical vision. Is that how God speaks to Moses? We're not told exactly. So that means it's not the main truth of that passage. But the main truth of God saying, and the Lord spoke to Moses, is this. Everything that he says here is you can say yes and amen to. This is the inspired word of God. This is 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is God-breathed. This is all scripture. And then related to that, he's trying to get us to have confidence that what this blessing is, is the very word of God. And the reason he wants to engender the confidence is so that we would, be, we would live on it. We would believe the word, and then we would live according to the word. This is Remember, Jesus says, um, when he's doing combat with the devil as the second Adam, because that's what's going on in, with the devil, Jesus is going to succeed as the second Adam with the devil in combat where the first Adam failed. That's Matthew 4. That's what's going on. And every single time the devil tries to trip up the second Adam, Jesus responds with, it is what? written and then he says we are to live on every word out of the mouth of god that's the significance of this the bible i know this is this is super simplistic you could think wow did you go to seminary for this the bible is the word of god the bible is the word of god and we are to live on the word of god even if the whole world rises up and says it it is not the word of god which they do and even even if the entire church were to rise up and say it's not the word of god which sadly a greater part of the church has. And we are to take our stand on this. The Bible says this. And why is that important? The devil's tactic to get you to disobey God is to first to get you to doubt the word of God. 
God comes along here and says, you are blessed. You are my people and you're blessed. And what does the world of flesh and the devil come along? No, 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 no. Do you think that's not true? So many errors, so many errors. Why would he do that? He's trying to rob us of our confidence, of our faith, of our hope, of our, of our God. And so God comes along and says, this is my word. And so when we come here in the world that the flesh and the devil say to you as a Christian, you're not blessed. Remember what the devil said? Gee, if, God, if you were God's son, would he have you out here starving to death? You see the idea? Really? Did he really say? Doubt God's word? Doubt... This is why you can take it to the bank. Every time you watch one of these guys on YouTube, and I'm not saying they're stupid. Some of these guys are super smart. They attack the Bible. Here's the two things that they do. They attack the Bible and they attack Christ, his person and his work. That's this. They want to rob you of your hope. They want to rob you of your joy. They want to rob you of God. Attack the Bible and attack Jesus. And then the Bible, the God comes along and says, this is my word. So... When the worldling or the unbeliever says to you, you're not blessed. No, no, you're not blessed. What do we say? No. The Bible says I am blessed in Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking in a silly kind of Pentecostal way. I can't steal my, take my blessing. You know what I'm saying about that. What people do. You can't, nobody steal my blessing. Uh, you can't, you know, the way they put it is you can't steal my joy. You can steal my joy any day of the week. But, but the notion is, if God says you are blessed, you are blessed. And so when you're in a low place, and this does happen, believe it or not, Christians get in low places and think, does God even love me? Yes, he loves you infinitely. Even in the low place, even in the low place. And it, it, it can happen spiritually. It could happen emotionally that you get there. And I'm going to say this as well. It could happen physically. Sometimes people think, well, you're depressed and something you're sinning or something. Oh, no, it, it could be. There could be something physiologically going on there. You take some medication, you get sick, you, you, a, a number of things, and you could think, wait, in the, what in the world's going on? You're in this dark mire physiologically, and it has a real effect on you emotionally and spiritually. And we need to train ourselves, wait a minute, my, my body is working against me. My mind is working against me. The word of God says, I am blessed. Okay. And, and what we have here is the word comes to Moses. The way that this word comes to the people of God is through a mediator. That's important. Our confession of faith, I think chapter 6, talks about the fall of man. After the fall of man, no one worships God except through a mediator. God will not allow unholy man to come to him except via a holy mediator. And so what we have in this text, remember this is a priestly blessing, it's being delivered by a man who's a prophet, Moses. It's being given to the priests. Now, the prophet is a go-between, a mediator from God to man. And the priest is a, is a go-between, a mediator from man to God, both appointed by God. So the prophet is God's appointed representative to represent the word of God for our salvation from God to man. And then the priest, which is the prophet, gives the word of God to the priest. The priest then represents man back to God. And so he is, both are chosen mediator representatives. And that is significant. That's how, that's how we worship God, through a mediator. You remember Job. In Job, it, it, and many of us can um, sympathize with Job. 
Job says how he wanted a mediator, or that sometimes the Bible will say an umpire. He says this in Job 9, 21. God is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There is no umpire between us. Who may lay his hand upon us both? Beloved, who is that ultimate mediator to tell us God's will for our salvation and then to invoke God's blessing upon us? Who's the ultimate mediator? The one who can lay a hand on God and a hand on, on man. There's a section on our catechism. I want to say it's question 38 through 42, I think. And the questions run something like this. Why is it requisite that our mediator be a man? Why is it requisite that our mediator be God? And that's the idea. That as God, he can represent God to man. As man, he can represent man back to God. He's the umpire that can lay his hands on both parties, bring reconciliation, and to invoke God's blessing. So we have Moses as the mediator. Christ is the fulfillment of that mediator. First uh, Timothy 2 says there's... Again, I'm, I, maybe this morning I felt a little polemic, polemical. I, I don't know, but tonight I don't. There are no other mediators. So I spent a good part of my life praying to St. Patrick. And I would pray to the Virgin Mary and St. Patrick. But um, uh, St. Patrick was my go-to uh, patron saint. Beloved, there's only... I feel bad for folks that do that. I did it. Is is not it's not approved prayer. It's not acceptable prayer. Praying to the Virgin Mary is not acceptable to God. It's offensive to God. The Bible says we have one mediator. Again, not Mary, not Patrick. Christ is the mediator. He's the one that represents the Word of God uh, to us. And and I know people think well, people don't do that nowadays. Nowadays, millions of people did it. I did it. And so then we have the mediator Moses giving the Word of God to God's people. And he actually gives it to the people's representatives, which is the priest. And so these priests are the, um, to, to Aaron and his sons. You remember, we've already hit this in the book of Numbers, that God, in his wisdom, his divine wisdom, obviously, sovereign, no one tells him what to do or makes any suggestions on what to do, um, he chooses one family from which to get the priestly helpers. That's the family of Levi, the tribe of Levi. And then one family from the tribe of Levi, God purposes to get the high priests from, the priests. So you have priestly helpers come from the tribe of Levi, but the actual priests themselves who perform these functions only come from the, the family of Aaron. And so originally there were going to be five men through whom descended the priesthood. Uh, Aaron had four sons. But you know, I've mentioned this before, maybe uh, Leviticus 10, 1 through 10, that God took two of the boys, Nadab and Abihu, in their priestly activities, I think they were drunk, and they offered strange fire, and God killed them. And so then there were two boys left, uh, I think Eleazar and Ithamar were the other two sons. So the men that would be produce, pr- pronouncing this benediction will ultimately descend from three men, Aaron, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Those are the, the, the progenitors of the priestly uh, class. Christ is the fulfillment of all of those things. I've mentioned this a number of times. I believe in the priesthood of believers. We see in the book of Revelation in one of the epistles that we as believers all... This is a... a fige, uh, no. e- e- Exodus, oh boy, it'll come to me. It's like 1911 or 1119 and then Revelation chapter 1. 
God in Christ has saved us that we would be a holy nation, a royal nation of holy priests. So that's the priesthood of believers that Martin Luther wrote about. However, I don't believe in ecclesiastical priests in the New Testament epoch unless it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I, I would not use that name for a minister. It's not a, I'm not totally persnickety about it, but quasi-persnickety about it. Um, the, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the antitype, which means a good antitype. Antitype is the fulfillment of these priests. The Bible says this, he's made like his brothers in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people since he himself was tempted in that which he was suffered. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So we have this blessing. There's the connectionalism between the increased devotion to God Then there's the dissemination of this promise of God through the mediator prophet Moses. It's given to the mediator representative, the priest, to represent back to to God. And then we're told the general duties of a priest. The general duties of a priest are two. One, to make atonement for sins, and then the other is to make intercession for the sins and the needs and the desires of God's people. So sacrifice in intercession. And Christ fulfills both of those things. In fact, Jesus Christ is both the sacrificer, the, the, the priest, and he is the actual sacrifice or the oblation. So he is both the high priest and he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he, he fulfills, all, he's greater than, he's fulfilling all of this. Christ is the one through whom we have all of these blessings. Christ is the one through whom we have God with us, Emmanuel. But that's, this is all being taught here. And so in the offering of prayers, even the language that the, prayer, that the priest would make, he offers up prayer. That's what we do. Our service, our, our acceptable worship to God is our offering up of prayer like a sacrifice to God. The priest would do that. And that's some of the things that we learn generally as we regard to uh, the business of this benediction. The other thing I want to bring out about a priestly benediction, which is what this is, at the end of the service, my service, um, I raise my hands. And it's very common in Reformed churches. I don't know about broad evangelicalism. Um, Some of you all have me at a disadvantage. I know Brother Tony and uh, Brother Mark have spent time in uh, other kind of churches, namely like fundamentalist churches. I don't know a whole lot about those other. I know some, but not a lot. I know more about the Reformed faith. And so it's very common in the Reformed faith when a minister closes to, to give a, a benediction. And then in the benediction, like what we're seeing here, there would be a particular posture in the prayer. And it would be a lifting up of the hands in the invocation of God's name on God's people. And this is significant for us. I don't know if it's a minor point. I don't know how I would quantify it, but it is a point. In the benediction that the priest is pronouncing, he raises his hand, hands. There are a number of biblically approved physical postures for prayer, is the best way I could put it. Biblically approved postures for prayer. And it's not, and the essence of this is not so much to focus in on the, the physical posture is not the end all. The physical posture of biblical, biblically approved prayer is meant to sh- show something about the heart. And so there are a couple of postures that the Bible records when people pray. 
And you, you'll, the, these will be readily, you'll call these to mind readily. So there is the business of lying on the ground. Is that prostrate? Yes, that's prostrate. So there, there are Bible prayers where the man lies or the woman lies on the ground. And that posture is meant to teach, that outward posture is meant to teach something about the inward heart. So, and it's much like wearing sackcloth and ashes, the, the Ninevites. They wore sackcloth and ashes in their prayer to God. And what is that? That's a humiliation for one's sin before a holy God. Or to lie on the ground before God. This is how John on the Isle of Patmos, when he sees the risen Jesus Christ, he's on the ground before Jesus. And what does that on the ground praying before Jesus indicate for the worshiper? That there is a holy reverence, an overwhelming awe, awe in the presence of an overwhelming God. That's what it is. It should, you're, was it Daniel? One of them was actually faint. And, and a, 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 um, a pre-incarnate Christ had to touch him and, and strengthen him. So the, the notion of praying on the ground, it, it is a biblical uh, uh, posture of prayer. Uh, denoting, and there is also the notion of not just a, a humiliation for sin, overwhelmed in the, with the holy presence of God. Isaiah does this, Isaiah chapter 6. There's the notion of submission, a heartfelt, a, a whole being putting oneself in submission under the great God of heaven and earth. So that's lying on the ground posture. Then you have people kneeling. In the church of my youth, we had kneelers. I'm not against kneelers. You just can't screw a kneeler to a a movable chair. (laughs) Kneeling is a biblical posture. And kneeling denotes clear things about the prayer, if it's heartfelt. Again, it denotes the idea of, and I, I don't hate to use this language, but it's legitimate, of a subordinate or, a, or an inferior before a superior. So this, this is not, when you come and you kneel before God, there's almost like a, for me, I don't know whether it's the training of my youth or just the Holy Spirit, there is a reflexive action. Bow your head. Get down before God. He's God and you're not. And there's this, just this, I am the inferior, I am the servant, he is the superior, I am the, the son and he's my father and I'm just subordinating myself before him. That's the kneeling posture. And it obviously is supplicant. We want something. And then there is the posture of praying with one's hands raised in the air. And I know typically Presbyterians don't do that and we get afraid if we see it in the Presbyterian church because we think it's going to get taken over by a non-Presbyterians, but, but it, it is a posture in prayer. And so many times in my own private pray, pray, prayer, I pray with my hands up. Um, don't tell anybody. But I pray with my hands up. And it's like this. And the notion of raising one's hand, again, this is meant to denote the posture of one's heart, one's mind, is you're looking away from man, from earth, and you're turning your attention where? To God. To God. What does the Bible say? Trust not in what? Princes. Trust not in man. Trust not in horses. The Bible says in Colossians 3, 1 through 3, set your mind on what? Don't set your mind on what? Set your mind on things above and not on things below. That's the notion. 
that our help comes from the Lord, our hope comes from the Lord, and not man. And we're not denigrating man as properly understood. But when we say, oh God, I need this, oh God, bless, this is a James. Every good gift comes from where? From above, from God. And I will just say this by way of application. A lot of our prayers, when we pray and we use God's name, I would argue we're not actually carrying out that raised hand teaching of looking away from man, from self, to God. We actually never make the, I hate to use the word connect. We say, God, oh God, I want, but it's heartless. I mean, Morris Roberts would talk about devotionless devotions, heartless prayers. It's a prayerless prayer. We're saying God, but we're not looking at God. We're not thinking about God. We're not feeling about God. The Puritan ministers would often, they would pray until they started crying. You think, boy, they really had a screw loose. Oh no, because whose presence do they want to come into? God's presence. Many of our prayers are just, we're praying to ourselves. I will just say this. We're praying to ourselves. Many of our prayers is we're praying to ourselves. It's the prayer of, and I hate to say this, it's the prayer of the Pharisee, which is not a prayer. Luke 18. Oh God, what? Oh God, I thank you. I thank you that, what's the next word? That I. You, you say God, but you're looking at I. You're looking at self. It's not, a, it's not a lifting up of a hands, a lifting up of a heart, a lifting up of faith. And I would actually, that's um, a breach of the third commandment, taking God's name in vain. But that's what the posture is meant to teach, is that we are seeking our blessing from God and in God. I will say the only posture I don't find, which I don't think, I, again, I can't be overly scrupulous in the Bible, is sitting. You don't find sitting. It's just an interesting side. Okay. Now, the definition of prayer, which is what's going on, is simply speaking to God. The way that we summarize it in our catechism, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of his spirit with confession for our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. This is, many of us, you might do this. I don't know where we learned this. Mona and I learned this, I don't know, from the homeschool group in Tallahassee. Acts. You've heard this, right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. That's this. We adore God. We confess our sins to God. We thank God. We supplicate God. Petition God. That's, that's kind of a summary. And what this is, is an invocation of, uh, of a blessing that God has promised to give. What's interesting about this particular blessing is God is the one that tells the prophet to put into the mouth of the priest the words that the priest are, is to pray for. I want you to think of that. Some of us, probably many of us, have been in other kinds of churches, not Reformed churches, not Presbyterian. There are other churches, I've spent time in them, where if you have enough faith, you've got to have super faith, whatever super faith is, but if you have enough super faith, you can ask for anything and God has to give it to you. It's kind of like a name it or claim it type business, right? And, and they mean anything. With enough faith, that's the key, you ask anything and God has to give it to you. He's obligated to give it to you. It's a misunderstanding of a couple times, a couple of verses like, if you ask believing, you get it. To my mind, that flips the, the scheme of master-servant on its head. In my understanding, we cannot 
even as believers, we cannot put God under obligation to us. We, we, even as the redeemed, the scheme is always creator, creature, redeemed, redeemer, redeemed. We can never flip that on its head and say, God, you must. However, God does put himself under obligation to himself. He does say, I promise that I will give you what I promise. Then on that, we can name it and claim it. <laughs> so when, when the Bible says, if you ask for wisdom, I will give you wisdom. And we can say, well, God, you have said if I have the Holy Spirit, you'll give me love, peace, joy. You can pray and you can say, God, would you pr- please give me more love to thee, O Christ? More love to thee, O Christ. More love to my brother in Jesus. You're going to get it. You'll get it. Because he promises those things. And so he says to his people, now you remember, what are they getting ready to do for the next 38 years? They're going on a little walk. And they're not going to go on a little walk in Switzerland eating Gouda cheese either and yodeling. This is going to be a, this is going to be a rough trek. They're going for a 38-year rough hike. And God says, here's what I'm going to say to you and promise to you to encourage you on the way. I'm going to give you myself. Now, as much as I'm being jovial about that, our life is a 38-year... I I know you say, Pastor, you're too Irish. I get it. Our life is a 38-year, 48-year, 8-year, 2-day rough hike. This is a Hebrews 11 and 12. And God says, I promise, I'm going to give you myself. So when we're in the valley, which is we're in, we live in the valley. When we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we live in the valley of the shadow of death. God says, I'm with you. You, you have me. So th- th- this, this, is not, this is not minor. This is not some theological, you know, fine point. This is God saying to his people, you're in the wilderness. You're not... What happens at the end of this book, theologically, historically? They enter the promised land. What happens after the end of our life? We enter the promised land. But while we're in the sojourn, God says, I'm giving you me. I'm going to be with you. That's the promise. The promise isn't that we're going to be healthy or wealthy. Um, read Isaiah 53. Okay. So God says, ask this. This is the approval of God for the things that he requests. Now, what he's saying, the form is very poetic. He actually gives um, three pairs of parallel uh, requests. And each is, um, a, it's, it's a poetic way to ask for some good thing, favor, some favorable thing from God. The, and notice he uses the covenantal name. This is the, the Lord in all caps. This is the Jehovah or the Yahweh. Theologians call this uh, in reference to the aseity of God, is what in, from Exodus 3, the aseity of God, that God is uncreated, underived, uh, that he's utterly independent of the creature. And this covenantal name is just that. It's a name from the, from the father to the child or from the husband to the bride. It's a family name. And so he's using that both that uncreated, independent God name and also reminding the people, I'm your husband. You are my bride. I'm your father. You are my child. And, and as soon as they heard that, they, it, their hearts would melt. 
So, so he uses that name. It, it denotes that he is limitless, but that he belongs to them by covenant. The covenant of grace, as we talk about, is the gospel. And in because of the covenant, God is our God and we are his people. Um, and, and his requests are that he... He, he would bless them and keep them and do good things to them. Now, there is one fellow I found, and I'm just going to pitch this out there, and you tell me what you think of it later. He sees, I'm not sure on this, but I'll pitch it out. I thought it was interesting. Um, he sees parallels between this ironical priestly blessing and the Lord's Prayer. And I'll give you the parallels that he gives, and this will be in the notes that I sent out on Tuesday anyways. Here, here are the parallels that this fellow sees. Um, he, he says that in um, verse 24, uh, the keeping or the guarding, he sees it as a parallel to Matthew 6, 11, where God promises, we, ask, we are to ask God for our daily bread, that God would keep us alive and sustain us. Then the second parallel is from Numbers six twenty five, that God would be gracious to us. And then the more clear parallel to me is actually Matthew six twelve where we say, Lord God, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And the funny thing is, I was raised in the Catholic Church. I don't know whether it's unique to my Catholic Church. We pray trespasses. And I have been super homesick, super thinking about my mother lately. And the other day I was praying the Lord's Prayer on my own, and I slipped into the Lord's Prayer of my youth, and I threw in there the trespasses instead of what I've prayed for 22 years as a Uh, uh, 30-something years as a Protestant, which is interesting. But it's the same idea, that we are praying for God to be gracious. That's clear. And then in the um, 26, that we are praying that God would um, uh, give us uh, peace. Uh, This fellow sees the parallel in uh, Matthew 6, uh, uh, 13, excuse me. We pray to be kept free from the tempter uh, and temptation. It's interesting things, but perhaps that's true. The ultimate thing, that all of those poetic ways of saying, oh God, would you be favorable to us? Notice all the things are spiritual and they're a reflection of God's relationship with us. And this is not to say that God won't give us health. God won't give us a wife or children or grandchildren or a job. He does all of those. He, he does all of those things and more. But we're being taught to value, we're being taught to, to value the soul higher than the body. And I understand that we're dichotomous or trichotomous, that God, Christ, dies for all of us. But we're being taught to, to value that which is spiritual over that which is corporal. And the benefits that we enjoy in Jesus Christ, our justification, our adoption, our sanctification, our glorification, the peace of God, the joy of the Holy Spirit, that's all here. That, that all of those other temporal things could go away. I'm reading a a set of series by Samuel Rutherford. He, like, he writes a book, Lex Rex, um, the, the, king, the Law is the King or something like that. And he can be a dry reader, but a writer. But I'm reading him on um, a woman's faith who won't quit, the woman whose daughter had a demon. And is, he's, he, he's very insightful. And he, he has a section there. He says, we, we can have all outward infirmities that he says hell to the Christian is made a form of heaven or, or like sickness to the Christian is made a form of health. What he's saying is if we have Christ, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, we have life, we have death, all things are ours. To have Christ is to have 
every blessing. He calls our crosses golden crosses or our afflictions golden afflictions. It doesn't mean we, we revel in the pain of them, but he, what, what he means is, is in God's alchemy, he takes those things which are seemingly opposed to us and we have the sweetness of God in Christ in those things. Whereas he says, if you do not have God in Christ, every other seeming sweetness is an expression of a curse. No God, no blessing, no matter what you have. If you have God in Christ, any of those hardships are ultimately an expression of a blessing to you. Because you have God, you have everything. You have everything. You have God himself. And that's this invocation of God's name. And historically, I think it's still true, historically, it's a principle of male headship, this, this, this giving of name. Numbers 30 is male headship, the father and then the husband. And so I don't want to get off on a tangent in my own thinking. But this notion that God says, I'm going to put my name on you. That's why women take the name of the husband. They be, they, I hate to put it this way. They belong to this man. He is their man. She, I don't, I don't talk this way, but she is his woman. That's the business. She's my family. She's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And God says, I write my name on you. You get my name and I write your name on me. The high priest had the name of the children of Israel over his heart. Our names are written on Christ's hands. And the Bible says in the book of Revelation that God's name is written on us. He owns us. We're his bride. We get his last name as it were. And we belong to him. And he provides all that we will ever need. And all we will ever need, this is why heaven is heaven, is God. God in Christ is heaven. Jesus says, behold, I come and my reward is with me. I come quickly. What's the reward? What's heaven? Is God in Christ. Is to have God. We, we are so blessed. We, we are so blessed. God is our God and we are his people. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.